Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with us today, we have an old friend, uh, Norm Eisen. He served as counsel to the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee during the impeachment process of Donald Trump in 2020. He's also a senior fellow in Governor's Studies at the Brookings Institutes and has written a recent book, Case for the American People. He's written a few other books. He's also author of The Last Palace. When I, and I love that book, by the way, Norm. Europe's Turbulent Century and Five Lives and One Legendary House from 2018. With us again is uh, Norm. And when we come back, just ask him a question. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. With us again is uh, Norm Eisen. And Norm, since I've got you here and I'm just going to ask you the question, what do you think of the RNC? Did they do a good job? Brian, thanks for having me back. Thanks for being uh, back. <laughs> they, they did a bad job in every dimension. Uh, I thought that the um, entire spectacle... Uh, was against the law. They violated the Hatch Act. I thought it offended uh, uh, American standards of um, uh, of of uh, nepotism because the Trump family was so dominant. <laughs> it was packed with lies. Look, you expect a little puffery there, political conventions <laughs> after all, but it was packed with lies so thick and fast you could hardly keep track of them and it was dripping with hate yeah. so in every way it was the opposite i love conventions i've watched them my whole life uh the first one that i remember the first ones that i remember are seeing the 1964 conventions with my parents and i, I enjoy watching both parties typically i yeah. forced i forced myself to watch it brian I forced myself, but I can't say that I enjoyed it. Well, I, I, a couple of questions, but there's never going to be any prosecution, is there, for the Hatch Act violations, but they were so obvious that you're using the People's House as, as a stage for a political rally. I, I don't understand why it can't be prosecuted. And there were thousands, I mean, every member of Congress, I think, that attended violated the Hatch Act, did they not? I did, I, I did uh, say that there were hundreds or thousands of violations uh, because, and you know, the most egregious ones were every single government employee who yeah. was dragoon. Uh, people say this, the Hatch Act doesn't apply to the president. That's not true. There's a provision of the laws against abusing 
uh, government resources for political purposes that does apply to the president. And it says the one thing the president cannot do, it's a criminal penalty for doing this, is force government employees to support his political campaign. Well, guess what? Everybody who operated a teleprompter, everybody who placed a chair, every security guard, the people we saw escorting the political guests in and out of the White House, the park rangers who were there, who were forced to be props. These, these are National Fort McHenry where Pence right. uh, and the, the White House is a national park, Brian. It's called yes. Park. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> you go to work in a national park every day, man. <laughs> you know. should wear one of those park ranger hats when you show up in the press room. Well, I, I tell you, I do wear something that no one on the White House staff wears, and it's a mask. Uh, yeah, well, there was that, too. I, I forgot to mention that when you asked me. It was, a, it was also a public health atrocity. So those were hundreds of legal violations. And and the truth was violated, and the standards against nepotism, also a legal issue, was violated. But um, there was also the violation, and I really think that these are the things that Trump will be remembered for in American history, hopefully as a one-term president. Hopefully, um, we'll I don't say that. that, and I don't say that in a, I don't say that in a partisan way. I say it in a policy way because it's so his behavior is so atrocious as a policy matter, so abhorrent to American history. But the two things that he'll be remembered for were both exemplified at this convention. I'm so glad you reminded me about the mask. One was the, the, his offenses against the rule of law, and the other is uh, his um, intentionally uh, wrong handling of COVID. What you saw at the convention was the president putting people in harm's way intentionally. And no matter how misguided, I don't think we've ever had a president. Presidents have made mistakes in American history, but they've never intentionally put Americans in harm's way to, for, for political advantage. No president has ever done that before. Of course, that was the heart of the impeachment. We'll talk about impeachment. Right. That's what the president has done from the beginning of COVID. We know, Brian, he said, if I deal with this the right way, it's going to cost me votes. So he's created a fantasy world. And, yeah. uh, and there are people who still believe him. At, at they're, they're taking their life in their hands. And you, it breaks to my heart. Do you think he's, uh, I mean, there are polls out today. He's, he's now shifted gears and he's calling himself the law and order president, which I find laughable. But he, he finds some traction with that. Do you think he can win come November? Uh, he can win come November. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, this you race think he will win. No, I don't think he will win, but he but he could. I I um, my crystal ball is in the other room. Do you want me to go get it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I never. I, I gave up guessing on these things years ago. I've always been wrong. But well, it's not guessing. You, you, you're modest, but um, but you, you know, I love coming on the podcast because you. Do I appreciate ask, it. There's nobody who asks it's better questions. The pod is very aptly named, um, but the it's not. You know, we're when I was ambassador, I would get intelligence briefings, 
And then when they brief you, they always tell you, we assess with a high degree of likelihood. They never actually tell you what's going to happen. Right. <laughs> and so I take your question to be asking me to assess, you know, and I would say I, I, I assess with some confidence, not a high degree of likelihood. I assess with intermediate confidence that um, the country will reject Trump. I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful because both, both the evidence before us, but also because of my faith in America. I was right about the midterms, for example, on a similar blend of analysis and uh, optimism, uh, predicted the takeover of the House. Um, I had a self-interest because I wanted to go work there as impeachment counsel, as I write about in my new book. We'll talk right. about it, a case for the American people. Um, so. Uh, I is, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. I'm, uh, and the evidence, I think, allows us to assess with some confidence that Trump will lose. But it, it, there's no guarantee. Um, and uh, I heard someone, one of the prognosticators, say uh, it's, it's slightly, slightly worse odds than Russian roulette. It's like playing Russian roulette with two bullets. <laughs> uh, in the chamber, so you know that's a little uh, that's 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 well, that's it. hopeful. <laughs> but I'm hopeful that the you know that the trigger will click. It's going to be put to the head of the of all of us on November. 3rd. I think it's at our head, and I and to me one of the most atrocious things. And I'd like to get your take on this. Um, we're talking about Kenosha and a 17 year old. Yes walking through a crowd of protesters with an AR-15. He's had no training. He's a vigilante. I, when did it become okay in this country for a, a vigilante to walk through a protest, shoot and kill two people, and then go home without it being touched? And in fact, video shows that he was in fact helped by police yeah. at the scene prior to the shooting. He was given... Uh, water and thanked for being there and saying he was really helpful. Now, I, I take away two things from it, and, and hence two questions. One, could you ever imagine a black teen being afforded that uh, ability, A, or B, what the hell's wrong with this country that we have armed vigilantes, 17-year-olds, walking through a crowd of protesters? Where, what's, what the hell's wrong? Well, um, <laughs> we... Take the we, first one. We know that um, that even unarmed black Americans and other people of color are at far greater risk. So um, the uh, image of a black protester walking with arms, I think, uh, extremely likely to be <laughs> to have been greeted with lethal force. So yes, but that that goes to the second that goes to the second question, which is what the hell is wrong? You know, it's I I consider myself and and it, it's a profound question that goes to the history and and the roots of our country. And I consider myself an extremely patriotic, proud American. You know this. Uh, from my first book, my parents came here as my dad as a refugee fleeing Europe in 1940. And my mom, after surviving the Holocaust, 
meeting and marrying my dad abroad, and he brought her back here uh, in 1950. And we, we're, you know, I still, I cried during the DNC, the Democratic Convention, when they were doing the doing the roll call, the Baltimore, the Maryland roll call was done from a spot in Baltimore Harbor, right near right. where my dad disembarked in 1940, Brian. I cried. Yeah. I'm not, I don't cry a lot, but I'm not ashamed to admit it. We're, we're deeply, emotionally, viscerally patriotic in my family. We love this country. My dad served in the military in World War II. He enlisted in the military. Um, so we're, we're, we're a, a family with military roots. Um, and of course I served my country, um, yes. my, as, as, uh, in the white house as an ambassador served abroad, had military troops, had Marine detachment in the embassy, and then just served on the Hill, which I write about in the book. But we have to admit, as those who love this country, and I know you're the same way, and I, and I have to thank you. You defended the meaning of this country, the, our Constitution, our First Amendment. It's not self-executing. Right. When my friend Ted Boutrous, I, I hope at least he listens to every podcast. You <laughs> he does, and I've put him on a few. <laughs> he's a great guy. I love him. <laughs> it, 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 it probably. And um, he's a patriot. I mean, he, he cares yes. deeply about the First Amendment. It probably makes it probably makes up for the fact that uh, you know the financial bath that Ted had to take representing <laughs> you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Hi, Ted. Hi, Ted. He's hey, my Ted. lawyer too. I yeah. love him too. Uh, so, um, well, so we're patriotic. Wait, I'm answering the question. Okay, okay, I'm all right, I got you, <laughs> dude. The name of the show is just uh, ask the question. Just, just ask the question. It is not answer the question quickly. That's a different program. I could not go on answer the question. Just answer the question. That would not work for me as a guest. So, so, but as a part of that patriotism, now to 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 answer the question, as a part of that deep patriotism, loving someone like me. You know, you've been married a long time. Like in a marriage, the form that uh, that my wife's love for me takes is not everything you do is okay, Norm. It is she tells me when something's wrong, and we got to be straight about what's wrong in our country. Okay, there is a deep, deep, and this Kenosha, the violence, the white violence on one side. And the disparate treatment that you point to for blacks and other people of color goes to the deepest, that is a part of the roots of our nation and yeah. slavery, the treatment of Native Americans. And we won't perfect the American project that we love so much. We won't perfect the American project until we address that. So, you know, we could do a whole other podcast on that. Yeah. Well, before we go to break, I'll just follow up with this. When I looked at the DNC and then I watched the RNC and I watched that couple from uh, St. Louis who pulled their guns out on peaceful protesters and tried to defend it. I often, I, I said to myself and I say publicly and I've said on several occasions on, you know, on television, 
what if that were a black couple in Southeast DC pulling their guns on white protesters? Would we <laughs> even, how would that play out? That would be, those people would have been shot. God bless you for speaking the truth, brother. Because that, to me, is the most frightening thing about uh, Donald Trump is the well to fear. Yeah, but I will say that, you know, it's a grossly disproportionate propensity. There's gross, if st the statistics, the evidence, which we know Trump hates, proves that blacks yeah. and other more uh, subject to violence, you know, and when you apply those statistics to reality, you can't you can't predict what would have happened in any particular incident. But I'll tell you, it's extremely dangerous. For, I could not advise any of uh, my black friends, colleagues, clients, neighbors to pull out a gun under any circumstances because of the you know the disparate racist treatment. So uh, statistically, you, you're in a lot of danger. As I say, you're in danger as a black person in this country, even if you don't, even if you're unarmed, if you're right. in the wrong place, you, wrong you time. You get shot seven times in the back. Look at Bri <laughs> or look at Brianna. I mean, yeah. it's a, you know, shot it's you terrible. It's, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. But it's been ongoing. For, I mean, Richard Pryor used to make jokes about that in the 70s, about, you know, you know police officers different than I do. You know them as... Hi, Officer Timkins, let's go bowling. And I know him as, I am pulling my wallet out of my, do not shoot me, please. I mean, it's been, this is not new. And no. it, it, I find it disheartening that it hasn't changed. But I also wonder, and I guess the question is, as, as an attorney, when people defend it and say, listen, uh, they weren't resisting arrest, or the 17-year-old didn't resist arrest, that's why he wasn't shot. That to me seems to miss the point. You, I mean, if you're unarmed and you're resisting, you, you mean that you, you mean the 17-year-old shooter in Kenosha? Yeah, <laughs> he said, "Hey, he didn't get shot by cops because he didn't resist arrest. Didn't you know, resist arrest. They let him go home." Yeah, it it speaks to the disparate treatment. Does does speak to the inherent bias in the system? Um, you know, we we. His case is an important one because I hope not only will he be prosecuted, but that all of those who were a part of making it possible for him to be there, there should be massive civil civil suits to disable them. This has been very effective with the Klan and the neo-Nazis and in the aftermath of Charlottesville, targeting civil litigation. Look at everybody who was responsible, the organizations, the individuals, bankrupt them all i know we're delaying the break but i have to tell you yeah. when we come back from the break i'm going to tell you one more story from my personal history about that all right well we'll be right back hi and we're back i am brian karam uh, the host of just ask question with us is Norm Iason. And Norm, before we went to the break, you said you had a story to share for us about your own experiences with uh, the disparate treatment of, of people. <laughs> I, I, had the, I had the great privilege at one point um, of being hired when border violence against migrants, undocumented migrants and otherwise, was at a peak. Um, I had the um, 
when was privilege of, of being hired. Well, now you're, it all blurs together this wonderful 30 years I've had at the bar. I think oh. it was in the early aughts. It was in the oh. early aughts. It was in the, um, uh, it was uh, in the period right before Vicente Fox became president uh, of Mexico. Oh, okay. So the Mexican, Mexican government reached out to me and said, look, our migrants, our citizens are being dis disproportionately targeted by vigilantes. And we started a campaign, a civil rights campaign, both official poli against police brutality all throughout the Southwest, but also against vigilante violence like we saw in Kenosha. And I can tell you that the way the police treated um, the shooter, what, number one, was not unusual. The police are often sympathetic to white vigilantes. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, that far that I found the most fearsome thing, and I hope that will happen here, uh, the most fearsome thing for these vigilantes, far more than somebody else coming after them with a gun, uh, is uh, a lawyer showing up with a subpoena. <laughs> well, they're far more afraid of the subpoena than they are the gun. They are. <laughs> that's, that's, that's for sure. That's exactly They right. are. So <laughs> I hope that it will not only be Kyle Rittenhouse, who is criminally prosecuted, and that all um, a measure of criminal investigation and prosecution against him and all those who aided and abetted and helped him with that, um, uh, the organizations also, um, but also that civil suits are brought like we did uh, and, um, you know, severely uh, impairing uh, the individuals and the organizations, if they're culpable, and we do have to let the evidence come in, if yeah. they're culpable, bankrupt them all. I agree with that. Good luck, and I hope it works. I, I, switching gears a little bit, I, wanted, I did want to talk about your book, A Case for the American People. Um, and we're talking about the impeachment, which failed to remove Donald Trump from office. And the Mueller report, which, although it was scathing, some say didn't go far enough. But there's, there's a, something that you wrote. It's like on page 60. I'm just going to quote it. Barr's spin job started to fall apart shortly after that faithful Sunday, March 24th. He issued an odd backtracking letter claiming his earlier characterization of the Mueller report was not intended as a summary. But my question is, did the spin fall apart? Because there are people to this day who still quote Barr and maintain that the Mueller report exonerated Trump and that Trump did nothing wrong. And to go farther, the second part of that question, Trump himself, known to be a, a, a horrible liar, um, was in the East Room after he was quote unquote exonerated, speaking to how Barr had told the truth and Mueller had not. Yeah, it was a bad East Room was a sickening display. Um, I was there personally, and I felt I felt like I don't know if you ever saw Indiana Jones and the uh, uh, Last Crusade with uh, Sean Connery, but the part where they're visiting a Nazi rally, and, <laughs> they, and he says, "My boy, we are pilgrims in an unholy land." That's exactly well, how I felt in that room. That night. I watching it on television, I felt uh, as I did uh, uh, once upon a time on a very 
bumpy Delta shuttle flight, uh, reaching reaching for the little paper bag in the seat in front of me, that <laughs> captured my my emotions. Uh, so uh, so here's here's the answer to the question. Uh, Barr lied. There is no major Trump scandal. Russia, uh, Ukraine, COVID, uh, Lafayette Park, and now we're going to be coming. Now we're going to be coming, Brian. Now we're going to be coming. You got a good book at the end of this, man. <laughs> Let's hope it has a happy ending. That's yeah. all I say. Uh, and now we're going to we're coming to the big crescendo, which is the election. Yeah, there is no uh, scandal without of the commander in chief, the abuser in chief, Trump, without the enabler in chief, Barr. He wanted his Roy Cohn, and he got something better. He famous Trump famously proclaimed in the White House, "Where's my Roy Cohn?" As I explain in the book, he got something better. He got his John Mitchell. Yeah, he he got a criminal attorney general, a high criminal like him. Uh, you know, if Congress weren't so broken. And if the election weren't about to deliver a verdict, we hope on both of them, you see impeachment proceedings against Barr too, because I believe he's committed high crimes and misdemeanors. And that, that takes me to the second, after reading your book, and I recommend it to everyone, it's a, it's a fascinating look at, at the Thank you. But um, when you look at it, it seems to me that it's not just the president, and, and he's a symptom of a bigger problem. And, you know, not the cause, but the symptom. I mean, you've got Mitch McConnell, you've got the Senate, you've got Congress that seem unable or unwilling to do their job of, of holding the president accountable. Um, and that seems to be, it comes to the front in your book on a couple of occasions, but yeah. it seems to be an under, uh, I mean, under the radar the entire time is the fact that Congress failed us. Yes? Well, no? par partially failed. I mean, the history, you, first of all, thank you for the kind words about the book. The nicest, I, I promise your readers, I did not inspire this, but the nicest, I don't know who these Amazon reviewers are. And the book has gotten, you know, the New York Times says it's enthralling and the Washington Post uh, uh, says, you know, nice things. It's gotten wonderful reviews, Politico, um, American Interest, many nice reviews that people can find, um, kind words. But the nicest review is by one of my five-star reviewers on Amazon. I ah. swear to you, I did not get my family and friends to write any <laughs> of those. I have no idea who those reviewers are. One of whom said, even though I know what happens in the end, it was like a detective novel that mm -hmm. I could not put down. And the tension uh, of the book is that um, the tension between the ways in which our system has failed us, and it keeps you turning the pages like, oh my God, not another failure, and the ways in which the guardrails have held. And it is not a it is not a clean yes or no, because there's many ways in which look, Brian, you were a hero when you went to court to defend your press pass. You did not bite your tongue. No. You were your your livelihood was at risk because if you had lost that case, 
I love being on the pod with you, but it would be hard to make enough of a living by having conversations with me once every few months. <laughs> yeah, I love you too, but you're right. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of people who have stood up and done the right thing. Look at there. Many of them are my friends and current or former colleagues. Look at the witnesses uh, who defended in the Ukraine um, who answered the subpoenas over Trump's objection, my former State Department colleagues, okay? Right. They showed up and they did the right thing. They're heroes and not just State Department, Fiona Hill, who I work with now at Brookings right. and I worked with before she went in the administration. She's my friend, I don't always agree with her. We just wrote dueling op-eds uh, about how best to deal with Russia. Um, but she, you know, she stood up, she did the right thing. So there's the the heroes are many, but the villains are many too. And you know, Mueller, yeah. tremendous letdown. Rod Rosenstein, who I've known for years and years and years, and I defended on television and in columns. Uh, he was a terrible. Uh, he was not just a. You know, Mueller screwed up. He didn't go far enough. Right. He, he failed in good faith. Bad judgment. Good faith. Terrible judgment. Uh, horrible judgment. Rod, bad faith. And that hurts yeah. me, you know, after what I said about him in the book, he'll probably never talk to me again. It hurts me that what he did to say there were no obstruction offenses when Mueller clearly proved five. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the worst were the bar is worse still. Trump is bad. Trump is not the worst of them. The worst no. is because he's a bad person. The worst is when good people intentionally do the wrong thing. And that's the Senate, Brian. It's the House, and I write about this, the failure of almost every House Republican. And the Senate, the yeah. Senate. Many of them are good people. I still like them despite what they did so wrong, but that only Romney, Romney's the only one? That would stand up. Come on, well, come on. I you know what that was all about. It's Mitch McConnell wanting to put the judges through and, and the idea of putting, you know, party ahead of country. They sure. think that that's doing the right thing, that ultimately the, they know better and that the country will do better because they've done right. They, that's, I mean, I talked to them and there's no doubt in my mind that many of those people think they still are doing the right thing. Well, Dr. Faustus thought he was making a good bargain, too. But he turned out his soul was not worth it. And it is not worth it. Yeah, I agree with that. We're going to take another short break, and we'll come back with some final words. Hi, and we're back. And uh, Norm, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about um, <laughs> uh, the failure of the Senate and the House. But I guess let's go forward a little bit. November, you see into the crystal ball. I, I mean, I see a lot that has come apart in the country in the last four years. And and, and I think the press has, has failed a lot as well. I think we've not done our job. But do you think that going forward that this is it can be fixed, government, the press, all of it that has been stressed beyond and stretched beyond belief. Do you see that it could be fixed 
in as much time as it took to unravel it? Or do you foresee a longer uh, uh, time getting things closer to normal? Well, the history uh, humanity is uh, an arc uh, of progress. You know, President Obama I had the privilege to go and talk to him sometimes about these very issues, these struggles in the Oval Office, both when I was his special counsel and then when I returned as ambassador. And uh, he had on, the, on his drug in the Oval Office uh, embroidered the um, saying that Martin Luther King liked to articulate um, that the arc of history uh, bends towards uh, progress, but, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, uh, but the arc is slow. Yeah. Um, so I think the whole history of humanity bends towards progress and, and it, you know, to get from the Greeks, from the Greek idea of democracy, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, um, the uh, rebirth of, of these ideas in the Renaissance, the explosion with the American Revolution, um, and, uh, and to some extent, the British and French revolutions, which were uh, bloodier than the American, um, you trace that idea forward. We had our own bloody internecine battle, the equivalent of the British and French in the Civil War. We tried and failed to purge American history of the stain of slavery, the original sin, and we're still struggling uh, with that today against that long backdrop, Trump's um, excrescences, as unprecedented as they are, certainly since the, his behavior, um, you know, is by far the worst of the modern period. You have to judge all these periods by the standards of the day, right? Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was a horrible racist, and yet he was <laughs> celebrated for decades because he was judged by the standards of the day. We no longer forgive that. But, but Donald Trump is even worse. Yeah. And he's, judged, he's judged by 21st century standards. But you have to step back. And when you look at that arc of progress, I have, no, I have little doubt that the progress will continue where I'm less positive. I'm positive it will continue. Where I'm less certain is the time it will take to fix the damage. We started with the risk that you asked about, of, you know, is it possible Trump will be reelected? Yes, it is possible. It is unlikely or it's looking less likely, but it's possible. Um, if he's reelected, the damage will take far longer than the eight yeah. years of his tenure to undo. Even if he loses, the, the damage is still quite profound. I think that, um, but the healing power of democracy is, and our democracy in particular, the strength of the American idea, the power of our constitution, the fundamental goodness of most of our people, not all, I think we've seen that some fall a little short, but, but most of the American people, the vibrancy of the system, the seeds of democracy, 
that we so laboriously planted. Oh, that's Brian. It's your, um, it's your, uh, uh, you know, your, 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 your bloviation alarm is going off. Uh, after World War II, when we saw the mistakes we had made uh, in our first global effort after World War I and the abortive effort to found the League of Nations, the transit, transatlantic democracy, I'm the co-chair uh, with a prominent conservative, Jeff Gedman of the Transatlantic Democracy Working Group, the trans-Pacific democracy, the efforts we made in Japan, in Korea, South Korea, the Philippines, to instill anchors of democracy across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, they'll help us come back. So I think there's a lot of resources to draw on if the American people do the right thing. And just to close on my book, it's called A Case for the American People for a Reason, because I argue to the American people all of this, that there is a direct line between Russia, are you listening? Ukraine, can you do us a favor there? Right. COVID, where Trump said the same thing, quid pro quos, to American governors. Yeah. If yeah. they don't do what he wants, he doesn't call. And yeah. now the election, the same thing, all the same elements coming together. We, I argue to the American people, convict this guy. If Congress wouldn't do the job, you have to do the job. And I believe they will. And I believe that we will heal. And I'll be back on the pod with you to talk about how America can recover. That sounds great, Norm. Let me ask you the two quick questions. A, do you think anyone will be prosecuted for violating the Hatch Act? And then secondly, going forward, what do you think the first step needs to be going forward once Donald Trump leaves? And we'll close with those two questions. Um, on the Hatch Act, I'm sad to tell you that there uh, high crimes and misdemeanors, but more on the misdemeanor side in the common parlance, not the constitutional parlance. And because there are so many felonies to be looked at when and if Trump is ousted, no, I do not think we are likely to see Hatch Act prosecutions as odious as it is, but it's possible. Uh, less than 50% likelihood on the first question. And then um, ask the second question, since it's called uh, hearkening to the title of the podcast, you'll ask the question and I'll, uh, and I'll just answer it for once <laughs> in short, tight form. What do you think is the first step that needs to be made once Donald Trump leaves office? Well, the very first step is to um, um, reassert the the core idea by a President Biden that has been that Trump entered office rejecting. He entered office with um, announcing he was going to keep his businesses and he was going to take foreign government cash and benefits, so-called emoluments, which the Constitution expressly says he can't do. He entered the presidency saying the presidency, therefore, is for my personal benefit. Right. He put the public interest second. And then he had that horrible election uh, inaugural speech, so divisive and ugly and dark 
in which he rejected so many Americans' hopes. So um, you, you have a message of selfishness, of greed, of division. Um, and, and then he lied. Immediately, he sent, he sent uh, his uh, press spokesman out. You were probably there to I say was. it was the greatest ever. Yeah, I was. I was standing right there. And he never I, recovered from that. I, I, I have said if, if anyone is surprised by Donald Trump and how low you can go, you did not see that first press briefing when they came out and lied to us about the size of the inaugural crowd. That set the course, and he has not veered from that course since day one. He's going to so, lie about everything. So to answer the question, I think that a President Biden needs to reassert that the presidency is uh, to benefit all the people, uh, not um, his personal and political benefit. And, and, and he, he uh, is a person who can do that because of, um, because of his credibility, his long career. I think he needs to send a message of unity. He needs to embrace everybody. He needs to say he's the president of all the people, including those who voted for Trump, including um, uh, 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 you know um, all Americans. So a message of inclusiveness. And then the third thing he needs to do is needs to say the truth. And there are some uncomfortable truths that Americans need to hear to go, um, you know, to go. Uh, back to some of the other subjects we've talked about, and not all the truth about America and what has happened is pleasant. And he needs to start with those hard truths um, and how we're going to fix the legacy of of racism in this country, of white violence against people of color, against Native Americans. That's something I've also worked on my my uh, my whole career. So I think um, that's how you fix it. I, I want to thank you for having me with you today. Oh. I always learn a lot when I come on your podcast, truly. Well, thank um, you. I always have a lot of fun with you. It's, it's always a same. good time just talking to you. So, same. I'd love to have you back anytime. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerem. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.